Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with the writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Sitting in the Flames, Uncovering Fearlessness to Help Others. And our author who joins me from the Phoenix, Arizona area in the United States, Dr. John Edwin DeVore. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Yeah, nice to be with you, Jay. Pleasure. It'll be a pleasure. We'll have a good conversation. I'm sure we will. You have have written a book of 255 pages or so. What was the uh, the purpose of writing your book? What was the story about? You know that that story uh, actually was started uh, when I was a student. That would have been in 2002 at uh, Naropa University. I happened to be there studying the five wisdom traditions along with meditation. And the particular class that I was taking at the time was uh, was called Spiritual Models of Social Action. And the instructor in this particular case was Dr. Judas Simmer-Brown, who uh, actually wrote the foreword of the, uh, of the book, Sitting in the Flames. But anyway, in that class, we were studying Mahatma Gandhi, uh, Sulak Sivaraska, who is a Thai social activist. Uh, we were studying Martin Luther King Jr. And then last but not least, we were studying uh, about a Vietnamese uh, monk by the name of Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and his partner, Chen Kung, were very active in Vietnam during the war. As a matter of fact, Thich Nhat Hanh had, uh, been, actually was exiled from uh, Vietnam for four, over 40 years. But anyway, one day Judith brought a book to class, put it on her desk, looked at me and said, John, you need to read that book. That book that, uh, had been written by Chris Hedges. Chris Hedges was a, uh, a journalist for the New York Times and also an adjunct uh, professor over at Princeton University. And the title of that book was War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. Hmm. And that book then stimulated the uh, the interest in going back and visiting my two years of combat during the Vietnam War. And as a result of that, uh, the book was sparked. The The first spark, obviously, was an ego uh, bang. Correct. Uh, number two, the... Um, the more I wrote about my experiences in Vietnam, the more I recognized how therapeutic it was for me as a person. And then ultimately, um, you know, the book was written to help other people because the inspiration um, I really felt could be helpful to others. You know, just by going back and living and being with their chaos and the trauma. Because I think there's a lot of power and energy there if you transform that energy that's contained in those negative emotional uh, and mental incidents. Yes, and you're not a anyway. you're not a uh, you're not a I was going to say not a novel to novelist uh, being a novelist. You have written other books as well. Is that correct? 
Yeah, I have one other book, uh, as a matter of fact, Jay, that was just published uh, by Ex Libris in this case. It's called Golfer's Palette. Totally different uh, really, perspective. Totally different. But if you look at it, the central theme that wanders through it is the same. You need to bridge the body uh, and the mind, and you do that through the breath, and that's where the power of meditation has come from for me. The uh, title of your book, Sitting in the Flames, what is the significance of the title? Okay, the, the title really is talking about sitting with our own personal Vietnam Wars, and mm. that's, it, it's really about just sitting in our own emotional trauma, because there are a lot of messages there that can uh, be very fruitful to an improved quality of life. As you were reflecting on your tour of duty and other aspects of your book, how long did it take, and were there some complexities in dealing with those issues? Uh, Help me a little bit more, Jay, in being more specific. I guess specifically, were there challenges in, in going back to that time, that visit to Vietnam and your tour of duty there? And if so, how did you overcome them, and what is the significance of that that aspect of your book? Okay, that's a great question. There were It was a traumatic experience at times, because when we go back, at least from my perspective, when I had to go back and sit and, uh, and just face the trauma of babies crying in the bottom of the well and people getting shot, it, it became emotionally very trying. And through guided meditation, Judith uh, was able to help me go back and actually, the way she'd explain it was, now, John, just go down in the basement of your house and dig that stuff up and just be with it, sit with it, experience it, reflect on it, write about it, and then just go sit with it. And out of that comes a significant amount of of energy, and there is freedom you know, that comes out of just being able to sit, at least from my perspective, with my own emotional uh, pain and trauma and thoughts. And how long did it take you, John, to do this process of writing the book? It, it took me about five years. Five years. Uh, to finish it and, the time and, that I started. And uh, in writing this, who did you think this book would benefit? What was your purpose there? Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I spent a lot of time, uh, not only while I was at Naropa, but after the fact, the target for that book specifically was returning veterans. You know, I think our tendency in this, particularly in our culture, is to just bring our soldiers back and expect them to be able to integrate back into our culture. That doesn't really happen. Um, so it was targeted at returning veterans. And in the other particular, the important uh, target, from my perspective, is the families of those veterans. I've had people come up to me and make a comment, John, I really thank you for writing that book because for the first time in my life I'm able to talk to Grandpa or I've re- reacquainted or reconnected with my dad, you know, or I reconnected with my brother. So uh, the target market is returning veterans, like the Iraq veterans we have coming back now, the people from Afghanistan, Um, so veterans and their families. You have have written also or or included 
declarations of the like the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, basic meditation instructions, war and moral value syllabus. You've also included something called the Seville Statement on Violence. What does that entail? Uh, the, the Seville uh, Statement on Violence is merely a, as I recall, a proclamation of the United Nations that we'll do anything that we can to maintain peace, not only in respective countries, but throughout the globe. So it's just, it's just a way, and the only way we can have that peace is for each of us to take that one step at a time to find comfort and peace within our own selves, and through that uh, we touch others who can also enjoy the fruits of just a peaceful life. Would you call your book a journey of self-discovery in addition to one that you wanted to put together to help others? Uh, most definitely. Uh, you know, this the self-awareness uh, path has been something that I've been on for like over, oh, it's coming close to 40 years now. And, and I think self-awareness is where we are because through self-awareness is when we, we spark and unleash our own personal creativity to create the type of life that we intended to be. What is the one message, in addition to the general messages that you have outlined in your book, that you want or you think comes through in your story? That there is freedom. You know, even even though we may experience whatever that emotional trauma happens to be, there is a sense of peace there and... Uh, as we create the life that we intend it to be, uh, not only a sense of uh, there's a peace of mind there, uh, and under that peace of mind we find a sense of compassion that helps us lead a more purposeful uh, life. Uh, not only uh, purposeful, but in our connections with other people, you know, they come out of a foundation of compassion. In your writing style, would you describe it as instructive, or, or would you call it narrative in your approach? Um, you know, it, it's it's not only constructive; it is narrative. But I would characterize my style as more of coaching. In other words, my my whole style has been not only my writing, but in just the way I live my life is to try to understand where people would like to be and then be a facilitator or an enabler to help people get where they would like to be. Would that be the way you would describe this to someone if they were to meet you on the street or in some public setting and find out that you have authored this book? That, that's exactly right. In other words, <laughs> what it would be is if, if you'd like to have some, some personal freedom, and experience what I call 100% responsibility, that life happens because of us and not to us, you know, the book will be helpful for you to help realize that goal of just having some freedom in your own life and some own peace of mind, which I think is fundamental to the whole concept of happiness. Absolutely. Have you been able to get any response from readers of your book to this point? You know, I've had a lot of significant response. I've had, uh, obviously, there have been some some comments that they had wished that I had developed some of the characters in greater detail. But on the other hand, uh, the response that I've had has been 
you know, it, it's comforting. As a matter of fact, it's humbling. I'm glad I made the commitment to actually write the book. When I have a daughter come up to me and said, you know, I, I actually was able to pick up the phone and call Dad the other day, and we talked about his war experiences, and that's mm. something that he has never done in my whole life, and here I am, 51 years old. So uh, I, I've had some very humbling feedback. I've had people talk to me and tell me that, you know, I picked the book up and I just couldn't put it down. But on the other hand, I've had people say, you know, I really had to put that book down and think about what you really have encouraged me to think about uh, and what you said in your book. Congratulations on completing this and sharing it with the world. The title again is Sitting in the Flames, Uncovering Fearlessness to Help Others. Our author, Dr. John Edwin DeVore. Dr. DeVore, where do we get copies of your book? Uh, you can get copies of the book. You can go to the website, which is www.johnedwindevore.com. The other places you can get it are Amazon. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it at Ex Libris. It's also uh, available through Kalahari and Exclusives. Devora is spelled D-E-V-O-R-E for those of you who want to do a search online or want to request this from your local bookseller. Dr. Devore, thank you for sharing your story and for sharing your story in print, Sitting in the Flames, Uncovering Fearlessness to Help Others. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Yeah, Jay, thank you for your time. I enjoyed our conversation. Have a great day. Thank you, sir. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Get ready to live la bella vita with Dawn Catherine on Toginet.com. Live la bella vita. If you're wanting to know all the beauty tricks of the trade and the latest fashion trends before everyone else, this is your show. If you admire celebrities' beauty and their fashion sense, this is your show. Do you love wine and want to know more about the process it takes to make wine from the vine to the bottle? This is your show. Live la bella vita. For more on the show and your host, check out our website, labellavitacosmetico.com. This is the kind of show you can sink your teeth into. If you enjoy traveling and food and family, all with an Italian flair, then you can live La Bella Vita with your host, Dawn Catherine. Wednesday nights at midnight, 11 p.m. Central, on toginet.com. Back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Race Athlon The Goal. And our author, G. R. Sneberger, joins us from near Santiago, Chile. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This is an interesting dichotomy. You are in Chile. You have a very good English uh, ability to speak English. This book, uh, was it written in English originally? What was your goal in putting this book together? Well, certainly the book started as a study that we underwent with uh, my team. Uh, It took us three years to figure out what actually success, what's the meaning of success? Because 
a lot of books are written about this topic. So we wonder, okay, what about if we're able to find not a recipe, not a how-to guide, because that's everywhere, but what if we're able to find a strategy that allows people to find success on their own terms? Because, for instance, to some people, success can mean be a good parent or be rich or you name it. I mean, it depends on the people. So after the, this three-year study, we were able to find that despite the, the culture that people have, there are uh, three major races that we all run all together that impact our balance, such as the personal race, the professional race, and the public race. Each one of them has specific uh, workouts, as we call them, uh, to achieve success after you run each one in a sequence. So you cannot start running your public race if you have not uh, completed your personal one. Your personal one is the foundation where you're able to win, between quotes, uh, your, your, your value, your, your core values that allows you to keep on running so you're able to set your vision in life. Where are you headed to? I mean, I'm headed to be a parent, or maybe I want to be the best student in, in my university, for instance. After you are able to find your own foundation, you're able to move forward and start running your professional race. Your professional race means your value proposition, what makes you unique in the world. What, what are you offering to the many worlds you run into? For instance, okay, you are running in your world, your spiritual world. What are you offering there? Why are you different from the rest? Now you're, you're running in your world of work. You're working in a specific company. So how are you differentiating yourself uh, among the, all the other participants in the race? Because life, as we define it, it's a race against time to achieve your own goals and dreams. A so GR able to define what makes you unique. A GR, you're not you're you're not an old uh, an old soul, or maybe you are an old soul, but by your photo, you're a fairly young individual. Where did you have this motivation? Uh, where did the idea of the race begin with you? Yeah, well, I, I've been lucky enough to travel the world many times. Uh, I I'm working in well in my all different companies that I have, but I'm working also in a mining company, which has allowed me to travel to different places where I have been able to see and share different experiences with different people. So I lived in China for a couple of months. I lived in Serbia, in Romania, uh, and in Latin America, too. So I was able to actually test all these workshops, all these uh, the trainings that we put, we assemble in the book, that we try to explain in simple terms. So everyone can grasp or get the gist of uh, what we're trying to say. So even though I'm, I'm very young, uh, I've been able to, to share my, my amount of time with, uh, with different people more experienced than I am. So I've been able to, to share with my team because uh, I, I didn't do this by myself. I didn't do this by myself because we are around uh, 11 people that between psychologists, entrepreneurs, uh, journalists. So we all work together to assemble these strategies. I'm now the the face of this uh, of this series of books because it, this is the first one, but uh, I've been able to to try and, and get information from different and more experienced people. That's why uh, 
Yes. How how long did it take you, Gr, to get this assembled with your team and completed? Two hundred pages or so. Yeah. Well, the study lasted two uh, three years, uh, and after that, uh, it took us around a year and a half to to have everything together. So it was a very long process. We thought actually it was going to take us less time, but well, uh, the first book. Uh, maybe it took us longer because this is the first project that we tried to do massively. Uh, and hopefully for the second book of the series, because we're trying to, to get into more detail for the different races and different strategies, uh, it's going to take us uh, a few amount of time. You have also uh, described three different types of people in the world. You've uh, described people that I recognized immediately. It's not me, uh, routinaries, uh, rock stars and runners. Explain how those different people approach life and approach success. Okay, yes, certainly. Well, after the study, we realized that even though there might be many different types of people, they all boil down to basically three kinds of people. The routinaries, well, are people that are very, very predictable. You can see them working at the same place for many, many years, having the same hobbies and so forth. So their life goes or evolves on a repetitive mode. There, you can you can easily detect. Okay, these guys are going to be there on that position or with the same friends for the years to come. Mm-hmm. Now, if you compare that vision of life with the rock stars, we call them rock stars because they are the best in one particular field. They have invested a lot of their time in one in one thing. For instance, uh, a tennis player. That person had to invest many hours from a very young age to be number one at that particular field. Or the best professor you can find in school or in a university, that person also. So that's a rock star. Maybe one of his or her followers uh, is going to let you know about his achievements. Now, that person only is, is good on that specific field. But what happened with the many other ones? Because if you are investing your time to be the best tennis player in the world, maybe you are forsaking many others. For instance, be a good friend or be uh, connected to God or anything. So now we realize that there are, there's a, a different uh, type of person. We call them runner. And why do we call them runner? Because they are able to keep balance in life. We do this analogy between uh, a runner because in order to run physically, you also need a connection with your mental condition. Because if okay, let's suppose you just start running, okay, but you yes. you are worried about your situation with your wife or with your family, you won't be able to run as good as you could. So, a runner is a person who is able to find balance in the areas that they care about. For instance, okay, I want to be a good parent, but also want to be a good entrepreneur. And I want to be uh, the best journalist. Uh, I don't know, you name the profession. I can be. So it's a person who's able to find the balance in the right proportion for, for him or for her. A mental preparedness is important. Training. And then you say, go the extra mile. How to become the ultimate runner. Runner is the goal of your book. Who is the target audience? Who do you think is going to benefit from reading your work? Yeah, we have realized that a lot of people who read the book are young people, people who are still in school or starting uh, certain uh, studies. Uh, people between the range of 15 to 30-year-old, 
these are the people who are looking for different perspectives in, in their lives. Uh, they are, maybe they are trying to, to make a little turn from the, from the experience they have now. They are trying to open up their minds and look for different uh, situations, different uh, trends, you name it. But we have also realized that old people also, uh, senior people, for instance, that they would like to, to find certain clues, certain strategies that they could start implement, implementing from now on. They have also uh, told us that the book has been uh, useful because they didn't know that it was very easy to simplify life if you see it as a three tracks that you are able to run parallel. So now for them, uh, the situation gets uh, very, very simple. Um, they, they can start taking care of their personal race or the public race and start learning from the rock stars. And that is why we realized that the book, even though it's written for, for young people, also old people have a chance to, to get something out of it. You've approached things uh, this way with some positive advice, how to balance success the way runners do. And your question at the start of that chapter is, what are you running after in life? Is it money? Uh, you uh, approach that. Is it family? Or is it something else? Friends, perhaps? You have uh, outlined that. You've also included some diagrams and some thought-provoking ideas in your book. How would you introduce this book to someone in a couple of sentences and get them interested uh, to get their own copy, whether they're pursuing business or whether they're pursuing a music career, whatever it is? Yeah. Uh, well, if you're looking for, for a new perspective in life, if you're looking to, to find happiness on your own terms, this book is meant for you. Because it, it doesn't tell you what to do, since after all, you've been able to handle your life perfectly fine until now. So you don't need someone to tell you to do this or do that. No, no, no. This is a different approach that's going to open up your mind and help you take advantage of all these proven strategies uh, as you want to. So this is the goal of the book. It's a guide. It's not a secret or a recipe. No, no, no. You take advantage of it as you want. Uh, and we consider it very useful because after this three-year study, we have uh, interviewed over a 1,000 people by now, and it's been proven successful in over 80% of the cases. So we think uh, it's, it's a good way to go uh, and to start running your life the best way you can. You've also included some uh, personal stories, not your own personal stories, but personal stories and, and reflections that uh, someone might be I involved in, like a family situation. These round out the idea and the concepts of your book, do they not? Yes, yeah, certainly. Actually, those were real stories uh, about different students we have had or people we have had meetings with. So the purpose of those uh, short stories are to show people that they are not alone in the world. Maybe they are able to relate in some way with those cases and they can take something positive out of it. We had a case uh, of a nurse who was diagnosed with a very uh, difficult breathing uh, disease, disease while she was working in a hospital. So she, she thought that, well, now the world is over because I, I, I have to be in this village that I don't like at all, but either because I, I signed a contract, uh, this uh, public service uh, helped me out with the tuition of my studies. Uh, well, now I have to return many years, and now I have this disease, and I don't see a way out, so I'm stressed. Well, 
she told us the situation. We started working together on her professional race, and she she realized that actually, even though everything looked very uh, blurry, very um, obscure, very dark for her at that particular time, she was able actually to find a positive way out because she realized that her personal race had a different vision for her life in that situation. So everything boiled down uh, to uh, a very good uh, ending for her because now she lives with, um, she, she got married, she was able to find uh, an opportunity out of that hard time she had to face. Uh, so we think that those stories are very useful and are written in a very simple way. Uh, and a lot of people are able to relate. That's the purpose of that. Fabulous. The title is Raceathlon. The goal, run your life the way you want, but make sure you're on the right track to boost your success. Some positive stories in here and some great advice. Is there a sequel coming up? Yeah, actually, we have planned 11 titles because there are different races. There are also different purposes for the people. For instance, if you want to be a good parent, there is a book for that. If you want to be uh, a good mother and be working and be taking care of your kids, there is also a book that our, one of our psychologists is working on that. If you want to run your wallet the best way possible, there is also a book for that. So we are planning on launching a book uh, one per year for the next 10 years. That's the main goal. And actually, the, the title, Race of Run, has a meaning. Is a mix between a race because we are all we are all running against time, and from the last part is because your life, the challenges you are facing, can be a marathon, a pentathlon, you name it. Depends on the series of tests you are facing now, or you think you are facing. So that is why it's a mix of words that we are trying to help you out, easy up your 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 own track, how you can run that the best way possible. Uh, we're trying to give actually a, a, a positive uh, message here with this, uh, with the book. And every every single book is practical. We don't want to stay on the uh, on ideas or uh, things that are very hard to implement in life. No, no, no. We we didn't. We did the opposite. That's a lot of the self-help industries trying to do now. That they tell you stories, they give you good ideas, but maybe you cannot relate to them and try to implement them. Okay, we did. Uh, they're completely the opposite to try and do the worst way possible so people can take advantage of the message. Exceptional job on this one, Raceathlon, and our author, G.R. Sneeberger, who's joined us from Chile. And the last name, S-N-E-B-E-R-G-E-R, if you're doing a search online. Where else can they get a, a copy of your book, G.R.? Well, they can go to any website they want to that sells book. We are everywhere. Uh... And also on our website, which is www.raceathlon.com, there you can find a video that explains in in three three minutes the message, the main message of the book. You can see the next titles that are planned and so forth. Congratulations! Thank you for joining me today. I know this is. Uh a wonderful work and should have some great impact on the reader. Recommend it uh, for my listeners to get a copy of Raceathlon. The goal. And again, the author, G.R. Sneberger, S-N-E-B-E-R-G-E-R. G.R., thank you for joining me today, and look forward to talking with you in the future. Certainly. Thank you for having me. Best of Take luck, care. sir. Yes. For Ex Libris On Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages.
Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris on air. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Today we have a charming story of history and a personal encounter, personal life of uh, our author, Stella Henson Griggs Batson, who has written a memoir or a memory book titled Memories of Thompson Orphanage in Charlotte, North Carolina. Joining me from that area is Miss Stella. Welcome to the program. Thank you. This is a uh, personal look back at your association with Thompson Orphanage. Share with my listeners how you became associated with it and what these stories entail. Well, when I was 11 years old, my father had died, and I was 11 years old, and I had two sisters. Uh, uh, one was uh, seven and the other one was ten. And my mother, they weren't expecting her to live. And uh, so she, we always belonged to the Episcopal Church. So our priest and I guess our godmother helped mother get us into Thompson Orphanage. And um, in, anyway, there, there's where I, uh, before I went, one reason I wrote this book is because people have the wrong idea about an orphanage and even little children. And so, uh, I used to always have dreams, and uh, when somebody heard I was going to the orphanage, you wait till you get to that orphan home. They'll get those fancy ideas out of your head. Hmm. That you wear blue in the summer and brown in the winter. So our mother was in the hospital, and uh, my sister-in-law took us, brought us to Charlotte. All right, it was raining that day, but we were waiting for people to, uh, for the uh, superintendent to come home. And when they did, all these children started coming home from the movies. And they were laughing and talking, and all had on beautiful clothes. So right then I knew that, uh, you know, there's this big misunderstanding. The person that made that comment to me really didn't know anything. There is a a misunderstanding about orphanages in general, at least in the past, that uh, they were a a cold and unthinking, uh, not a very warm and engaging place. But you found out this was not the case with Thompson Orphanage. Well, the way I, well, children still had problems, but the main reason they, these children had problems, and I put this in my book, uh, is so many of them feel deserted. Yes. You know, they don't really understand. And back then, you didn't explain things to children. So I, put, I have emphasized in my book that an orphanage is built by people who love children. 
And when you put a child in an orphanage, it's because you love him and want to try to help him to see the best that that person wants you to have a chance as, as, you know, to do things that he he would love or she would love to be able to do for a child. And I think with that understanding, when you first go, it would make a big difference in the way the children accepted the orphanage. How long has the Thompson Orphanage been in existence, or is it still operational? No, a couple of years ago, they changed the system. It was in existence for 125 years in 2011. But it had already started changing up. Uh, They started putting children in foster homes and uh, things like that. And they, they were able to go out and have part-time jobs to help buy their own clothes and stuck together are the ones of us that grew up together. And, um, we, I mean, we have friends. We, we're still attached to each other. And uh, without that orphanage, we would have been separated from our own families, and we wouldn't have all the friends to support us that we have now. How many children? How many children were involved? How many children were involved in in the orphanage when you and your sisters uh, became uh, attached to it? Usually, usually eighty nine. Eighty nine, or somewhere or, along there, somewhere under a hundred. Yes, we had, right. We had two cottages for boys and two for girls, and an infirmary, and um, they were separated by age. And the thing, you know, we were not put with like my sister was too young to come to my cottage, and. Uh, so that that part did. I mean, I think things like that did do some damage because they, you know, away from their sisters or brothers, they felt isolated. You but, have uh, you've included a lot of photos in your book, and you've also included some of the founding influences that helped shape your life. Uh, Reverend William Harden Wheeler. Who was he? And and uh, was oh, he Mr. someone Wheeler that you knew? was such a wonderful man. He was a superintendent before. Uh, Mr. Wisnett, and uh, I think Mr. Wisnett was the first layman to ever be superintendent of the orphanage. But when Mr. Wheeler retired, he continued to come every Sunday, uh, every holiday, how he did all this, I don't know, for as long as he could, for around 40 years probably. Incredible. And And I just think that he had such an influence on all of us that he deserved it being dedicated to him. He had a, a heart for children and for people. Oh, he, he was he was love himself is what I call him. Uh-huh. I mean, he was such a kind, sweet, sweet man. And you have the dates from 1922 to 1940. That's when he was in charge or That's when or you leadership. went there. That's when you went there, and that's when you left. And were you, you in the uh, orphanage situation or in that system prior to 1940? No, I went in '45, in and the Whistons had just come a few years before, and I always kind of felt like we were in there at the best of times. First thing they did was, uh, anyway, the first night I was there, you know, when we went into our cottages, all the girls were really thrilled and happy to see us, and um, uh, they, they told us to call the house mother, uh, Grandma. So. Um, Maybe I shouldn't tell this part, but yeah. I was trying to be nice. I said, if you give me some shoe polish, I'll polish my shoes. She says, I reckon you will. Nobody will do it around here for you. So I thought, okay, old lady, see if I'll call you grandma. Yeah. <laughs> so I, would, I was a sickly child, and I went to, I'd write letters to mother, but I wouldn't mail them because I didn't want to worry her. 
and my brother comes home from the army and he comes to see us and I make out like I really love it and I get I get my when he gets ready to leave I say, Ben, don't tell mother but I hate this place. Uh. First thing mother did, she uh wrote me and said, Stella, I guess you'll always be unhappy like me uh. and it was like a light bulb went in my head. I said, No, I won't. If I straighten up I have a chance at life. I quit presenting everybody and joining in and ended up absolutely loving it and everyone there. Spectacular. You also mentioned another key character that was part of your shaping of your attitude, and that was Lily May. Who was Lily May? Oh, Lily. Oh, Lily May was a precious woman. She went there when she was seventeen, I think, as a cook for the. Uh, see, the whistles changed uh, the way you ate. They built a central dining room where we all ate, but prior to that, everybody ate in their cottages. So she went there as a cook, and she used to tell me about, um, you know, teaching the boys to dance and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But she continued to be there, and she was the maid to Miss Wilson. She did Miss Wilson put her in charge of so much to do you know things that need to be done with us, and um, we just loved her. I mean, she, uh, little maybe something else. She's funny too. You've included stuff. But she, but she, but she, she stayed there until she retired. And they furnished a home for her. Really? And Grandma Quick did the same thing. Her picture's in the book with the little girl. Um, she had no family. And because she had been there so long, they uh, gave her a, a home at the infirmary. Amazing. So they did a lot of good other than just with the children. It, it sounds like a very uh, engaging and uh, inviting place for children who were in need at that point. Well, tell it, one of the boys in the book told us that, you know, Stella, I never was happy there, says, but who's to say I would have been happy anywhere, you know, yeah. under the circumstances. Right. And uh, anyway, he emphasizes, that he, you know, that he, that's the only way to go, in his opinion, because he was able to, you know, get the training he needed to be able to go out in the world and, you know, compete with the best of people. And, um, in fact, he became, a, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but he became a very wealthy man, and hmm. so was a bunch of the others. But they just, it just instilled confidence in uh, the children because you had think, uh, you were taught different things to do, and each person had a specific job, so you were not overworked. You know, like I might have to clean my two bedrooms uh, before I went to school, and somebody else would have the bathrooms, and... You know, a little job, you mm-hmm. always had to keep your things straight. But everybody had a job to do. And uh, it, it, they always had things planned for us. And it was, to me, it was wonderful. And some of them, when they did leave, would come back, you know, all the time, busy, and said they wished they hadn't left. Really? And one girl, she just died. She told me, she said, Stella, she said, I'd give a day of my life if I could go back to the orphanage. Just one day, like it used to be. Incredible. But that's just volumes. It does. You have stories, personal stories, from people who uh, had gone through Thompson Orphanage. Uh, share one or two of those. What do you think was the most interesting story that you have shared in your book? Oh, that's kind of hard to say. Uh, the Hopkins boys, uh, in fact, one of the stories he didn't let me, uh, the young son didn't let me remember put his story in there because he said he shared things with me. He hadn't shared with people. But uh, they're all, uh, since I know most of them, 
you know, a lot of them because I kept in touch with them all through mm-hmm. the years. I would encourage people I didn't even know, and it was really to promote the alumni. But after years and years of that, they learned me through my cards. So when I called up people, you know, different ones to uh, see, I started out writing on newsletter, and I saw that wasn't working. But I started gathering so many stories that it just evolved around the book. But see, the two oldest people in my book are almost a hundred. Really? And the youngest person in my book is uh, in her early 50s. So it goes you know, back, I think, like four decades uh, you know, to now. And in the last part of the book, there's three stories uh, about the home now. It's called Child and Children Services, I think. And um, it's one step below a hospital. And they have, I believe... Uh, six cottages and 36 children, and um, they have uh, a doctor and a nurse and all that on, on, on staff, and they have uh, caregivers that come in uh, every eight hours to take the place of the other one. But what I don't approve of, of that part, they do wonderful jobs with those children and really, really help them. That is the most loving place over there. And But after they leave, they, or they, they uh, work with the children, but when they and with the foster homes that's going to keep them or the family. But then if that foster home doesn't work, they don't get to go back to the orphanage. Oh. Or, I call it the orphanage. To Thompson, they have put into the system. Oh. And I think our government has done a lot of harm uh, just passing the kids off like that because they don't get training that they need. And... Um, then end up, you know, just not knowing where they belong. Uh, Miss Stella, how long did it take to write this book and, and get in contact with all of the individuals? You've included their personal stories, which I think is a great way to approach this. Well, I, it really, I was by myself, kind of. Uh, my husband had died, and I was um, just sitting at the computer, and I'd call somebody up, and, and uh, some of them would give me their story, and some of them wouldn't. And so I would type a little bit if we ask them all the very same question, and every one of the stories are different. Incredible. Um, and uh, I would ask them the very, you know, same questions like, "Well, how did you feel, you know, if you were old enough, you know, when you came?" What, you know, ask them that, like, how long did it take you to adjust? And up until today. And um, anyway, it just evolved. I didn't just sit down just to write a book. I just I didn't have anything to do, and I liked to write. So, uh, and I love the people out there, so I just called them and got their story. It just sort of bobbed. Well, it's beautifully done. You have included the, the date of the time they spent at Thompson Orphanage, and and from reading the stories and reading and seeing the photos that are in this, uh, it was a happy experience, generally speaking. It was one that was positive oh, we, in their lives. we were. Yes. We were happy. Uh, there's some though that uh, you, some of them. Okay, my book is worth writing because of one story. This one boy that had given me a story, and it was so bitter that I uh, couldn't use it. Plus, he didn't like me changing up the wording, and uh, he wrote me after my book came out. I thought he'd be one person that did not would not like my story. And he says, thank you, Stella, for sticking to your beliefs. Mm. See, he went out there at three years old and his uh, little brother and his daddy was having to, but he had no other choice. 
And um, he grew up thinking he was rejected. And I think the part in there, that's where I put that you were put there because somebody loved you and cared about you mm-hmm. and wanted to see that you had a chance in life. I, he, he, he wrote and told me that nobody ever tried to explain anything to him, and he was bitter all those years because he just felt like he was rejected. I said, that's for us, me writing the book, to know that one person had made a difference. This is a wonderful reflection. The uh, title of the book, again, is Memories of Thompson Orphanage, Charlotte, North Carolina. Our author, Stella Henson Griggs Batson. Uh, Miss Stella, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? All right. Now, as soon as I copied it and I got started getting this thing published, I got sick. My husband had a stroke, and then I lived on antibiotics all summer. So um, I I haven't been able to, uh, you know, get out there and publicize it yet. But uh, Amazon.com, you can get it through them. And also, you know, these bookstores like uh, uh, Barnes & Noble, they would have to order it for you. But uh, I'm just now getting on my feet again where I can, you know, like have this interview and then, uh, you know, start promoting my book. Because truthfully, I think, I have a book with a message, and it maybe hopefully enlightens a lot of people and then makes some children realize that they are special if if they were put out there. An important message. And again, yes, you can order from your local bookstore under Memories of Thompson Orphanage, Charlotte, North Carolina, and also under the author, Stella Batson, B-A-T-S-O-N. And you should be able to get it. Uh, this is a this is a fascinating book. It is uh, one that is uh, kind of one of those nice reflections that gives you that warm all over feeling. So thank you for sharing your story and sharing the story of others. One thing, real quick. Sure. Is uh, Amazon dot com? I think uh, as disc- discounts it uh, like about two dollars. If you know uh, at the bookstore, you get full prices of twenty nine ninety nine for the hard copy and nineteen ninety nine for the uh, soft copy. And then $4 for like Kindle or something like that. Fantastic. Great visiting with you. Best of luck on your health recovery, and we hope to hear from you in the future. Well, I thank you for calling me. My pleasure. Giving me this chance. For Ex Libris on Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.